Hello and welcome to the Big Happy Life podcast. I'm Natalie Britt and I'm a coach, trainer and hypnotherapist. But more importantly, I am an adoptive parent, a wife and a human trying to figure out how to live this life and do it in a way that feels more intentional. In today's episode, I'm talking to Isabel Griffith, who is an emotional well-being and resilience coach. She's also a trainer and speaker, and she's the creator of the Pause Approach, which she'll tell you about in this episode. After 20 years in the corporate world, she now specializes in helping female leaders who are experiencing stress and high-functioning anxiety to basically press pause, to reconnect with themselves and develop a resilient inner core. It's her mission to help women become more emotionally empowered so that they experience less stress, live more, lead well, and have the impact they desire to have, both in their families and in their work lives and communities, and that they can do that without sacrificing themselves and their well-being in the process. Her coaching is insightful, transformational, and compassionate, because this has been her journey too, and she tells us all about that right at the start of our conversation. So let's dive in. a little bit about first of all how you ended up doing what you do and mm. and who are the the kinds of people like can you tell me a little bit about your story but also the stories of the kinds of people who you end up helping through what you do mm. so and and both are inevitably linked I think a lot of us who end up in the coaching or training profession come from you know it, it's it's fueled by our own stories and experiences so um, I was in the corporate world for 20 years in a multitude of roles, um, you know, having these kinds of virtual calls long before Zoom was in fashion. Um, in some of these roles, I managed quite large teams. I had young children and I'd been just pushing myself, pushing myself, you know, just really living that tunnel vision life of carrying on and on and always hoping that there'd be an elusive place that I'd get to one day and be happy. And on the outside, I felt like I ticked all the boxes. You know, I had the beautiful children and I had a lovely house and a wonderful husband. And, you know, I was financially secure. All the boxes of what I knew um, or what I'd taken to mean, this is what you need to do and complete to be happy, I ticked. And yet I just wasn't happy. Um, I can't tell you the number of times that my husband drove me to the station in the morning and I was in tears thinking, there's got to be another way. But for whatever reason, you know, it's as if I had blinkers on and I just carried on. I think, so, you know, so often you, you sort of almost... Um, carried by the wave that's what everybody else is doing that's how life is stress is just what it is that's life you know and so you carry on you push through and eventually all of that you know the lack of pause for years the juggling the children the performing at work caught up with me and eventually everything came crashing down so I found myself quite a few years ago, sitting on a bench outside my house and feeling utterly at a loss. I, I um, you know, to the outside world, I looked like somebody sitting on their little bench outside their home with a cup of tea. It was so quaint and lovely, but really what was going on inside my mind was completely different. So my mind was so busy with thoughts, it was almost unbearable, most of which were um, negative, self-bullying, um, you know, just really harsh inner dialogue. 
like I said, I ticked all the boxes to be happy. And I found myself sitting there being very unhappy. My anxiety levels were through the roof. I could barely function through a day. If any hurdle came up, I just felt completely caught off guard. And that would be enough to send me into a downward emotional spiral. So, I mean, I think as rock bottoms go, that was probably that moment for me. And I thought, well, if if I ticked all the boxes, then where else do I go from here? And so to cut a long story a little shorter, I'd been practicing yoga for a while. I started when I was pregnant with my daughter. And at that moment, you know, these times I started going to yoga um, during the day. And those moments when I was on my mat, life felt like it was bearable. I felt like I could be with myself and I was at peace. And I couldn't quite carry that feeling outside of being on the mat. But for those moments, I just felt at peace. And so, you know, through yoga, I then discovered mindfulness and meditation. And that became part of my routine. And really, over a period of time, those two predominantly two modalities, I guess, really helped me to create a completely different way of life. And so from being a student, I trained to become a yoga teacher, then a mindfulness teacher. And that led me to then become a coach. Um, really, it was quite organic. I would have students come to me after a yoga class. And I was still working in the corporate world a part of the time at that time and say to me, you know, this is what's going on for me. Can you help me? Because something was happening in their body um, while they were doing the class and, and they couldn't quite verbalize it, but they knew they needed help. And I felt like I wasn't equipped to deal with that and to support them being in integrity with my training. So anyway, that led me to train in NLP, to become an emotional resilience coach and, and to um, train in embodiment. So I trained in a number of modalities and really that's what I used to support women who are just where I was back in those days. You know, they, on the outside, I call this high functioning anxiety. And it's the sneaky kind of anxiety. So you can't see anything from the outside because it looks like your life is together. You've got a thriving career. You know, you're achieving great things at work. You are over delivering, always raising your hand to take the next project. You know, it just feels like it's perfect. But on the inside, you're fueled by this energy of stress and anxiety. Perhaps you're not sleeping well. Maybe your health is starting to um, deteriorate a little bit. So you might have real tension in your shoulders, in your back, headaches. So those little things are starting to happen. And you realize that there's, it has to stop. Something else has to give. Because if it doesn't give, then you are going to give. You know, it's going to be... Um, you falling apart, just like what happened to me. So it's those women, it looks like everything's perfect, but really underneath there's this high functioning anxiety. And, and I often talk about it as, I use a representation with my clients of a, a sort of almost a pyramid with a reflection in the water where you can see the top and what sits at the top is this over-delivering, like being in control of life, you know, living the dream, achieving great things. And underneath, it's fueled by the perfection, the overachieving, um, the people-pleasing, all these things that ultimately are rooted in self-worth. You know, we want to do more and be more so that we can feel valued and ultimately be happy. 
but we're chasing the horizon because every time we meet something that we'd set previously, something else, another goal, another level to reach is set and, and we just keep running. So it's almost like chasing the horizon line, you know, or at running this gap between where we are and where we want to be. And the gap moves with us. So we never quite get there. And meanwhile, we miss out on the experience of life because we're so busy in our tunnel vision. You know, we disconnect from people, we disconnect from our environment. And I think the worst part of it is we disconnect from ourselves. So, you know, we we forget what we really want because we're so carried by that stream that we forget our desires, what we want and how we want to live. Um, so yes, that's not really a nutshell, but those are the kind of people that I help, those women. Yeah, and, and it's, oh my goodness, I am one of those women. Mm. <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's what you said. It's, we kind of help the people who are living the same story and my story is the same as yours that we can look around and we have everything that we're supposed to have theoretically and somehow it doesn't feel right. There's there's something that's not sitting right. So for you, I love this idea of high-functioning anxiety. It's funny because Mel Robbins today, she posted something on Instagram about two types of anxiety, Um, over-functioning anxiety, which is what Mm. you just described, where Mm. like the more anxious you get, the more you do, the more you push, the more you berate yourself, the less you sleep, like you find extra hours, you just keep going. And then under-functioning anxiety, which is where you retreat completely into yourself. I always used to describe that um, when I used to feel that way, it would be like the way I wanted to behave was that I wanted to crawl under a piece of furniture and wait there for the world to pass me by or get into a cupboard and close the door, just somewhere small, somewhere safe, somewhere where I could curl up. Um, And what's really interesting is I think that a lot of us actually, we can be high functioning anxiety, big achievers, but somewhere in us, there's that part that wants to go and crawl into somewhere small and just, Oh my God, wait it out. (laughs) Cause it's just sometimes so terrifying and so overwhelming. Um, so what, where do people start? I mean, if you're already in that, Hmm. because a little bit, I think a little bit for us, I don't know if you found the same, there's a little bit of you that thinks, well, I can cope. Like a lot of the time I'm coping. Hmm. So Sometimes, yes, I tip over the edge, but then I can come back. So maybe it's not that big a deal. What would you say to people who are in that space, who kind of every now and again, they tip over the edge and experience massive stress, and then it comes back again. But actually what what we're seeing is that that doesn't have to happen at all. Mm. That's it's really interesting what you shared about this this sort of over and under functioning anxiety and the way you're describing tipping over the edge or, or coping. And really to me it speaks to um the window of tolerance, which I think is a helpful place to start to answer your question. And it's I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's it's really this window within which we operate well. You know, yes, we have ups and downs, but on the whole, as you say, we can come back to a place of feeling centered and grounded. You know, maybe we're a little bit stressed sometimes, but overall we're flowing quite naturally within that window and it feels comfortable enough. 
Um, and then we go out of that window of tolerance and either we go into our fight and flight, which is, as you were alluding, that sort of um, over um, functioning anxiety where we all in the doing and, you know, getting things done, ticking the boxes and doing more. And really, in a way, that fuels that cycle of burnout to me. And I'll come back to the window of tolerance where essentially, you know, we we have so much to do and so little time. And so we start to feel stressed. And to compensate for that, we think that we need to do more so that we can, you know, tick those boxes and then we can feel less stressed. But what happens is that we continue ticking those boxes and then it starts affecting our health. So we stress more and more, we do more and more, we rest less and less. Our sleep is uh, broken because we, um, because we wake up at night with anxious thoughts. And so we wake up in the morning exhausted, thinking, oh my God, so much to do. I absolutely can't rest. And so again, we try to do more. And really it's a cycle of at running our overwhelm. And the trouble is that we never really get to that point. Or when we do, we then fall into this um, under-functioning anxiety, which is we crash down. So we, you know, the, the stress response can be fight or flight, or there's freeze and fawn. So really we kind of pull within ourselves, retreat within ourselves, and we we freeze, you know, we, we retreat, we move away because we just can't take it anymore. And often the women that I work with kind of oscillate between both because they have periods where they will push themselves so hard that they get out of their window of tolerance and then they come into a crashing point and they feel immobilized by um, a lack of energy, um, you know, the desire to retreat within yourself, to go under the blanket. And in those moments, we also pull away from social contact often. We pull away from seeing our friends, from doing the sport that really helps our mental health. And so we, we kind of keep that cycle going. And as we recover, we go back into our window of tolerance and then we might push ourselves over the edge. And so we live on that roller coaster. Um, so to answer your question, really what we want to be doing is how can we bring ourselves back into that window of tolerance and how can we operate more often in that window? And for me, it's about taking a pause. So when everything around you accelerates and when you feel like you are starting to accelerate yourself, it's pulling away from the galloping horses and saying, hold on, I'm just going to slow down. And a really practical way that I teach my clients um, how to do that is this pose approach that I've developed. And I use it in those moments, but also as a broader transformation arc in my coaching. So in those moments, posing is, so let's take the example of, um, you know, very simply, you're doing homework with your child and you've had a really tough day at work. Um, you know, you woke up in the morning, you dropped your cup of coffee, um, you made some toast and they burnt. You know, you have all these schools, you rushed through that they didn't have time for lunch. Maybe there was traffic on your way back. And then you end up sitting with your child. You're already tipping on the edge of your window of tolerance. You sit down with them and they just don't feel like doing their math homework today. And you know, you start to feel yourself getting uh, maybe frustrated, impatient, agitated. And so without taking any action, you're going to tip out of your window of tolerance, most likely, because that was enough to tip you over. And maybe, you know, be 
someone you don't really want to be, um, whatever that looks like for you. And so instead of taking or letting your autopilot take you there, you just pull away. You develop the capacity to pause. So to notice those moments where, oh, I'm feeling like something isn't quite right and take a pause. And pause stands for, it's an acronym, stands for five steps, five, five um, letters, five steps. So P is just pause, take a few breaths. So that helps to soothe our nervous system and really kind of come back to center. And I often talk about, imagine that you're breathing in your favorite flowers. And as you exhale that you're blowing out a candle. So you take really long and slow, deep inhales and exhales. And that again, soothes the nervous system. So it stops that waterfall reaction. And then A is for acceptance and acknowledgement. So acknowledgement first and acceptance. So again, taking a moment to notice how you're feeling, acknowledging that you're feeling frustrated, impatient, uh, maybe even angry. And accepting that that's how you're feeling, you know, it's okay to feel that way, because often we have a tendency when we notice that to then <laughs> let our inner critical voice come in and say, well, you're not a good enough mum. you should always be patient, you should make space for your children, you know, this isn't who you want to be, this isn't good enough. And so not only now do we have this resentment and this frustration, but we also come in to add more suffering to what's already there um, with all this internal dialogue, which ends up being, I'm not a good enough mother. So again, we, you know, we're widening the gap of where we are and who we want to be. So again, just accepting that's, that's where I'm at and that's okay. And then U stands for unconditional support and self-compassion. So, you know, just taking a moment to find a gesture, a few words that would really support you in this moment. So again, switching off that inner critic. And what I find helpful is placing a hand on your heart or touching your lips or just stroking your forearm, because again, it's very soothing. And often placing a hand on your heart and going, no wonder, you know, no wonder. I mean, immediately you're, there's a shift in your body that starts happening of wow, look at the day I've had, no wonder. If I were my own child, I would probably say, sweetheart, it's okay. You've had a really tough day, you know? Um, and so at that moment, we start shifting within ourselves. And then S is for self-inquiry. So what is the thinking that's really fueling that way of being? Probably I'm thinking my son doesn't want to do his homework which means he really doesn't care about his education, which means he's going to fail at his test and probably at his year, which means you know, he'll never succeed in his schooling. He won't get a place at university and he won't get a job and he will just be failing at life. And all of that hangs in this math homework. So, you know, suddenly the stories have taken huge proportions and no wonder we feel the way we feel. So it's just noticing, okay, well, these, particular thoughts are making me feel a certain way in my body. Is that way helpful? Probably contracted in my shoulders, jaws clenched, fists clenched, or not in my tummy. So can I start with just shifting my body a little bit, noticing what it would feel like to drop my shoulders down, to unclench my jaws, to make space for my breath by pulling the shoulders back, soften into my belly. And then noticing, well, 
what else can I be choosing to think? You know, maybe I'm, I can choose to think my son is tired too. Maybe if we both take a break and we come back to it, it will be okay. Maybe today we do half of the homework and that's good enough. You know, it's just, again, adopting a different way of being and then embodying is the E embodying your values so if your value let's say is kindness or a growth mindset or whatever else it may be then what would it look like to me in this moment to embody that and that would probably be saying do you know what I can see that you're really tired let's get a cup of milk let's step out for a minute let's kick a ball and then we'll come back to it um, and so that's the pose. And it feels long as I'm describing it, but really as you practice that, it happens in a moment. And I would say, if you only do one thing, stop and breathe. Mm -hmm. And that will already just help you to go, okay, let's, you know, as, as we were speaking about earlier, just moving away from the <gasps> what to do next to, okay, well, rationally, how can I be thinking about this? So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's it's beautiful and it's it's so elegant as well. And you know, it's funny because when I've attended training courses and heard things like that, and then later became a trainer and started training things like that, the objection that you so often get is, "Yeah, I've got time for that." Like I'm I'm sitting there and he's freaking out about this particular algebra question or whatever it is, and I don't know how to help him. So I'm so stressed. I I know, you know, here in the training room or listening to the podcast or wherever the person is, wherever we are, and we hear these things, we're like, yeah, it makes sense in theory, but there's no way. But the thing I found is, and I recorded actually a podcast that included this tip yesterday, funnily enough, um, which the tip was talk to your team. And I mean your team to be your family, your kids, your colleagues, whoever, not just in those moments, but outside the moments too. But in that moment, and I've done this with my daughter and it's worked where I've said to her, look, I'm really struggling to do this with you in the way that I want to do it. And I want to be helpful. I want to be patient. I want to be kind. And I want this to feel good for you. So would you mind if I just take a few minutes and then I come back? Would that be okay? And she's like, yeah, sure. I mean, at no point is that an offer that's a horrible one. Um, but before I thought to do that, I would sit there going, oh, my God, I can't even think. And kind of force myself through it as if the problem was that there wasn't enough time to think. But really the problem was that I hadn't created any time to think or asked yeah. for any time to think. And I think it works in a work context too. Like if you're in a meeting or you've got things coming up and you're going to show up in a way that's not helpful to anybody, mm -hmm. then asking for the five minutes to say, look, this is how I really want to do this. This is my intention. But at the moment, I kind of, I just need to get in the right headspace. Would it be okay if I take five minutes? Or if you can't say that, to go, I just need to pop to the loo. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'll be back. Absolutely. Give me, give me five minutes. I'll be right back. And then go compose yourself and come back. Like no one has to know. Yeah, I love that. Um, and I love it because um, for two reasons. Obviously, one, because I think it's a really valuable way of um, exercising that pose in those moments and to do it really elegantly. And two, because every time you do that, you role model to your child, your team, your partner, the fact that this is how you handle those situations. And, and 
every time that happens, you know, it gives them permission to do the same. And I wouldn't be surprised if your daughter at some point says to you, do you know what? I, I want to do well and, and, you know, I know you want me to do well, but I just can't do it. Can I take that pose? And, and I think that is exactly how we create, the, you know, this psychological safety in organizations and in our home too. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to say, I need a pose. And every time we do that, we just add a little um, layer to the psychologically safe environment we created. Um, so I, I really like that. And I, I think the second thing I wanted to share is, um, I think that's very effective. I, I use pose with individuals and in organizations. And I think it's a very effective way of, again, just coming back to center and, and creating that habit and that language within the organization so that you can say, do you know what, I'm taking a pose or whatever your language is. And, and so everybody knows what it means. And it's an invitation for them to perhaps do the same in the same moment. And then lastly, what it brought up for me too is this, I hear that a lot as well, that I don't have time. And I have two answers to that. You know, the first one is, it's a choice. And you've got to choose, you know, the way you want to live. Because really at that moment, the moment you choose to spend the time to pause is the moment, it's almost like a bifurcation in your life. You know, you can take this path or that path. And you're standing at the crossroads and you have the choice to say, I don't have time to do things the way I want them to be. I don't have time to embody who I want to be in my life. I don't have time to live a life that feels... Um, in line with what I believe in. I don't have time to stand up for what I believe in if it's, you know, again, role modeling patients to your children. Or actually I'm choosing to take the time. And every time I do that, I, you know, the emotional imprint that I leave around me is going to be different. And I feel so strongly about that. If we all took these moments of pause, we would create a completely different society. But it can't happen without commitment. So you, you have to decide what you stand for and you have to decide whether you're prepared to make that, you know, few minutes pause. And, and going with that, the second, you know, the, almost the flip side of that is there's this concept of the practice and then the real life situation. The being able to take that pose in a split second or in a couple of minutes is what you've practiced by meditating every day or by taking a pose, you know, in those small moments that didn't really matter at home. Like when the kettle is boiling, can I take a pose and notice how I'm feeling? Starting to tune into what's my body feeling like? What are my emotions like at the moment? So that when the moment comes to really utilize that practice, your ability to notice and to be aware of what's going on exists and it's there and it's much faster. You know, it's a bit like sewing a parachute as you jump out of a plane, it's not going to work. So you saw the parachute before so that you know you've got your own back when you jump out of the plane. Um, and that's where the practice is helpful. You know, people say, again, quite a lot, meditation isn't for me, you know, I can't meditate because my mind isn't still. And I think maybe this isn't for today's podcast, but, you know, there's a lot of myth about meditation. And I would say practicing mindfulness can take a few seconds. It's in the supermarket queue. It's in 
the kettle boiling under the shower when you brush your teeth, just bringing yourself to the moment and breathing and to start with that's enough. And if it has a disproportionate impact on the way you live your life, um, because you're then able to take that pause and make a completely different choice. Mm. So, yeah, I think, what are you choosing? You know, who are you choosing to be is, is really the question. And can you dedicate five minutes a day to practice a skill that will really help you to live a life that's more intentional? Yeah, yeah. And I, I completely agree. I've got to say meditation is probably the number one habit that, you know, if I had to, I've been doing a lot of this type of work for a long time on myself. Um, if I could only keep one habit, that's the one I would keep because yeah. for that very reason that I'm still terrible at meditation. I mean, terrible. Um, in terms of my mind is not still for the entire 20 minutes. I meditate 20 minutes a day. I should do 20 minutes twice a day, according to the training. I did. I trained in transcendental meditation um, and it's supposed to be 20 minutes twice a day, but I do 20 minutes once a day because that's what I can fit in. And I figure that's still better than no minutes. Mm -hmm. at all mm -hmm. um but the practice of sitting once a day for that 20 minutes and my mind pops and pops and pops and pops all the time but then I can find space again and it pops and I find space and it pops and I find space and what I mean by space is just the thought can come and then the quiet comes and then mm -hmm. the thought comes and I can find the quiet again and now I know what the quiet sounds like I know where it is. I know what it feels like in my body because I've done it enough times. So it's exactly like you said, when stuff happens, you know, I used to get really, oh, you know, something could happen like my husband would load the dishwasher in a way that irritated me. And yeah. I'd, be, I'd be annoyed about that for an hour or, you know, then it would, I would allow that to compound. So something else, he would look at me or say something and I'd be like, Ugh. but now because the thought can rise and I can go, well, that's not useful. Who cares about the dishwasher? And I can let it fall. So it's that practice. I think, I think the thing with meditation is the practice of letting go of the thought rather than allowing it to take hold and then running with it into the future. I think when you said, there was a thing you were talking about with like with the maths homework and going, you know, and then he's, he's not going to pass at university and this is going to happen and that's going to happen. And there's a phrase that I learned, um, where they say, they call it the shark music. Um, Daniel Siegel, he's a developmental psychologist mm -hmm. and um, he's written loads of books about um, developing brain. Fantastic, fantastic books. Yeah. But he calls that playing the shark music. So where we jump into the future and we give ourselves this kind of, da -da, da -da, you know, that's what's coming yeah. for you. Yeah. Um, and he said, anything that you're doing is going to be harder when the soundtrack is shark music. Mm -hmm. so and, and the thoughts obviously provide the soundtrack so if your yeah. thoughts are creating something that for you becomes almost intolerable in that moment then if you could change the soundtrack the whole thing would potentially feel completely different and you would be able to do much better quality thinking and you'd have yeah. access to all those resources all the patience all the kindness all the thinking all the creative problem solving all the things you have within you you have access to them again. When the shark music's playing, it's it's really hard to access those things. So yeah, I think I think there's something about mindfulness, uh, meditation, and mindfulness really being about finding that space, which is I guess the pause, 
mm-hmm. um, but also recognizing where on your timeline I think you are because that's mm-hmm. the other thing I find with these things that's stressful is if you actually look at those thoughts, they're never in the now. No. They're always somewhere in the future yeah. or reliving something in the past. You're not right here, right now in your body. And I think that's also what meditation can give you is the opportunity to come back and therefore, again, let go of some of that stuff. Absolutely. And I think that you touched on, I mean, there's so much I could, I could talk about. I maybe share one of Emily Fletcher's um, quotes and she says, meditation isn't about becoming better at meditation. It's about becoming better at life. Um, And that's exactly it. And again, you know, the thinking isn't the enemy. In fact, thinking is material for us to practice coming back to here now in the body and so in a way it, it almost gives us that material um so and, and I, what i also share with with my um, my clients when we do meditation is even if you sit for 5 10 20 minutes and your mind is full of thoughts you're looking for insights so what is that telling me about my state today you know what have i learned by just noticing that my mind is really busy did I notice what these thoughts were about? You know, and again, how much time did I spend in the past or in the present? So I think it's just that element of curiosity. Rather than being judgmental, can we be curious? Um, yeah, and 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 absolutely, it's a training to get better at life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you practice that so that in those moments you can pull the galloping horses away. And I love the shark music, by the way. What a great analogy. It's absolutely that. Yeah. 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 Since, since hearing that, I actually, in my training courses, I use I, two little videos where I show the same footage, one with the like ding, 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 ding music playing in the background. Mm. Um, and then the other one, the same exact footage, but with the shark music. And just ask people like what's happening in the scene. Um, and in the first one, you know, people think, oh, well, these people are going to a beach party. They're clearly going to go and have some fun. It's a lot of people are walking, all the rest of it. Um, and they must be kind of all going to gather in the same place. Then you watch the same clip and they're going, oh, no, that's something's really bad is about to happen here. Like all of these people are walking to their death, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, I think that's quite interesting. And to notice too what happens in their body, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure. And perhaps that's a question you ask just hearing that music probably creates a sense of ease when it's the or whatever music you're playing and then creating a sense of tension and stress and you know we talked earlier about um what's a small thing we can do to start and and really if you do breathing also notice what your body feels like and maybe again just shift your body slightly to see um how that affects your your states the way you feel and your cognitive thinking going forward sometimes it's very um, simple shifts you know sitting slightly more upright releasing the shoulders releasing the jaws releasing the eyes and that's enough to bring us back to the body to the present moment to a state where we can think clearly and act Mm. in a way that's more in line with our values Um, so yeah yeah, and I, I think that's such an important part as well is because everything you're talking about is this embodiment and is this coming back to the body. Mm-hmm. And that was also something that was new to me. In the early days, I was always trying to think my way out. Yeah. And I think when when the mind is the source of the suffering, 
and you mm. keep going back in and you're like something there's got to be something in here it's like going into the world's dirtiest and most untidy and over stuffed room and kind of throwing stuff around there's got to be something in here that's that I can use yeah and and you can't find anything because there's just too much and it's all chaos and the more you find and the more you pull out the more you're like oh god this is in here too ah it's it, I can't even begin to think whereas if you can come out of the mind and go into the body I think that can be enormously helpful because the body can send signals to the mind for calm Absolutely. to resume. Yeah. So it's almost like, it's almost like it's, I, I kind of think of it, I guess, like a circle now and just think I've been trying to get in at one point of the circle, thinking that it was a straight line and it's not. Mm-hmm. And now realizing I can come in anywhere. The result is the same. If I can calm my body, my mind will calm anyway. Yeah. yeah. So if I can't think my way out, then I must body my way out, move yeah. or still or whatever, just relax anything that allows your body to change state will again allow your mind to change state yeah and and I often think you I mean this is again such a prominent um trait that I notice in the women that I work with and that I experience too and not to say that my mind is always still and that I glide through life not at all you know I've remained human um, but it's that overthinking mind that's relentless and as you said we think our way through life and I think sometimes the best thing we can do is start with the body so uh, because it takes us away from all the looping thoughts and we can finally cut off almost, I I call it turning off the dripping tap, you know, because otherwise we're fueling that story. Um, And I think the body is so underused because most of us are disconnected from our body because we live in a world that overvalues cognitive thinking and really, you know, we, we want to achieve, we want to deliver, we want to plan, to calculate. Um, and, and that really leads us to use our mind a lot, to live in our mind a lot and to approach everything in life from our mind's perspective. Mm-hmm. And often the women I work with will even tell me, I only feel my body when I'm sick or when I'm in pain. And actually, the body can be used not only to regulate, but also for great insight um, and to cultivate some of the qualities that we want to cultivate. You talked again earlier about when I'm in that state, what, you know, what can I be doing? One of the embodiment models that I share with my clients is this, it's, it's called the four elements. And it's really a way to manage our energy in some ways and to decide which state we want to be at, at, you know, at any moment, what's needed in that moment, using the body as a way of creating the outcome and the state that we want to create. So um, these four elements are um, water, air, earth and fire. Um, And if I start with fire, the element of fire, when we in that state of fire, we in doing, you know, we want to achieve, to get things done, to tick boxes. It's quite a masculine energy. And again, linking back to our window of tolerance, it might lead us to burnout because we constantly firing on all cylinders and you can hear it in our vocabulary. And Whilst that can lead us to burnout, it's also helpful because without a bit of fire, we would get nothing done. So there are times where, you know, we have a project to complete at work and a little bit of fire is helpful. 
then we have the element of air, which is all our creativity and imagination and ideas. And again, sometimes it's more helpful than others. We can't be there all the time. Or again, we wouldn't get anything done. So we'd just be generating ideas. You know, the greatest thinkers of our times probably spent a lot of time there. But you, to make an impact, you have to take some of these ideas and and you know put them into place so there's a time for that when you're playing with your child great time to be in that air element and be playful and um, imaginative and then there's the element of water and that's being flexible and fluid and going with the flow so that may mean in in relationships you know adapting ourselves to what other people want and need going um, through a situation in a way that suits other people or or um finding an agreement so that we can all be you know content but too much water means that we we're drowning we people pleasing and we so busy pleasing others that we are forgetting about ourselves so we're drowning in all that overwhelm from saying yes not having strong boundaries etc um and then the last element is earth and that's really grounding, nurturing and planning. You know, you can imagine that very earth, earthly mother that's planning and scheduling, making sure that things are okay. It's very rooted and anchored. But again, if we only there, there's a sense of stuckness of not being able to move forward. And I find that helpful because the alternative is, is looking at being and doing. And I, I find that that's quite linear, but it offers us so much more granularity to think about, you know, we take that pose. So if you take yourself back to that meeting and you take that pose and you think, okay, well, what is it that I need to cultivate in my body? Is it fire? Do I need to be saying, okay, no, we're not going to be doing that. And here's what we're going to be doing. Or do I need to cultivate a bit of water and be more flexible and try to come to an agreement? What does that feel like in my body? You know, when I'm a bit watery, maybe my body is softer, fire is very determined and, you know, quite harsh. So again, these are simple ways of um, using that pose to come back to center and then go, okay, what would be helpful here? What's needed? And what quality do I want to bring to this moment? And how can I do that using my body? So, and I find it to be a really simple but powerful um, embodiment model just to manage our energy so that we're not always in fire or we're not always in water, but there's a, there's a flow. You know, we can find that, that ease and flow in life, which I think is what most of us are after. I think so. I think so. You raised something in my head then, uh, that that I'm still kind of thinking through. So <laughs> I like the idea of the four elements because I think it gives you it gives you something to think about in a I guess in quite a flexible way because fire can mean so many things. It's not like what do I have to do right now? Um, it's kind of like what energy do I need to bring? Should mm -hmm. I be more assertive should I be more flexible do I need to kind of ground myself and and think about what what's needed in this moment how to nurture myself or nurture the people around me or whatever it is but what I'm wondering is one of the things I've often struggled with in these sorts of situations is all of those options present themselves in my mind and then I get confused because I'm like well I don't know what's right because at the moment, you know, I've got 15 things I'm doing. 
my boss has just said I have to do that. So a part of me thinks, well, fire is the right way to go because I just need to shut this thing down and say no. But in terms of my reputation and my um, uh, kind of relationship with him and everything that's, the, you know, getting things the way I want them at work would, allow, would mean that I would probably be a bit more flexible. And if I plan this, maybe I can fit it in. So like all of that stuff happens in your mind. And again, there's not enough time to think it through because he needs an answer. You've got to say yes or no. Um, so you end up saying yes. Well, I do anyway, um, and when I was in those situations. And then I'd come away and I'd be, A, resentful of being put in the position in the first place because I'd be thinking, well, he knows how busy I am. Why the hell did he ask me in the first place? There were 15 other people he could have asked. He's come to me. Or that didn't need done or it didn't need done this way. But now I've said yes to it and I've kind of backed myself into a corner. Mm-hmm. So I know that's a lot. It's probably two or three questions in one. The first, I think, is, any one of the options could be right in the moment. How do you know which one? And then from there, I've kind of forgotten. <laughs> oh, it might come back. <laughs> I'll address the first one. Um, and I think, again, it's a really good question and a, a really useful point. And I guess I would go back to um, practice and practice when it doesn't matter or when it matters less. Um And also take the pause first, because often the reason we don't know is because we're still caught up in our mind and our mind is worrying and we can't um, access, you know, our cognitive resources when we're in our stress response. So in those moments, we tend to be in ebullition again, we stress, we, we want to move forward. But if we give ourselves the space to breathe and to pause and to take a stop, often we start to see a little bit more clearly, you know, again, that, that those options open up. And the practice is, again, you know, developing that practice of embodiment and of knowing. Um, and that, that might be a broader question, but, but very quickly, again, if we practice those in the moments that don't matter, we've developed that skill and we're more um, eloquent with it or fluid with it when it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I think the biggest skill that that's here. So we talked about the skill of pulling back and pausing and observing uh, rather than being caught up. The other skill is to take a bottom up approach so from the body up and tapping into our, our, our body's intelligence. You know, a lot of research is showing and you were alluding to that a little while ago in our conversation that it that we there isn't just this cognitive intelligence there's a lot of intelligence and insight that comes from our body back to our brain the problem is because we spend all of our time in our minds we've lost the habit of um tapping into that intelligence of just noticing you know every emotion that we experience in a way is a signal that our body is sending to say, hey, something needs your attention, but how often do we ignore that? Mm. So I think if we just train ourselves to be more attentive to what our body is saying, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I need this, or, you know, that's another intelligence that we can tap into in those moments. But 
again, I would challenge the fact that it's all about taking that pause and being comfortable saying, can I take a pause and get back to you? I just need to think this through. I think that's perfectly okay to say that. And also there'll be a trial and error, you know, you might react with bringing a little bit of fire and then feel like, well, that's not quite right. And and you can change, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of an incremental change. There isn't a right path that's mm. in absolute value that's the source of truth is is whatever feels right explore whether that's um that delivers on its promise and if not then maybe something else is needed i think it's really the ability to flow that's important mm. and and even to go back and say you know i said yes to this but actually on consideration i have five other projects so can you sit down so earth can you sit down with me and look at what else i can drop if i'm going to be doing that because i can't really see what takes priority over over mm. what yeah um so you know it's funny when you were talking um and you were talking about the elements my mind went to places where i could apply it and i went into the past and when i asked you that question about well how do you know What's really interesting is that I forgot I already know the answer because I rooted myself in the past. And one of the things, I even do this with my clients and I've done it myself, so I know how to do this. But in that moment, my head was so in the past that I forgot I knew the answer and I asked you. (laughs) Because one of the things that I've learned to do is, and it comes back to this intention, is to take the time to figure out and pay attention to my values. Mm -hmm. because whenever you have that choice of going okay you know I guess this is a career opportunity it's going to take x amount of hours I'm going to be away from my family or this is going to happen or that's going to happen if you haven't got amazing clarity on what your values are that choice is going to be hard because you're now faced with two things that in your mind look equally important But if you know already that one is more important than the other, the choice may not be an easy one in terms of you don't want to say no to the opportunity, but you know that if you say yes, it's going to cost you the thing you value most in some way. So I think taking that time, and I guess that's a version of a pause as well, is taking like a much bigger pause to reflect on what am I doing here? What is it that I want? So we don't end up sitting on the bench outside going, how did I make everything important when only one or two things really were in the first place, but like I created this whole thing. Absolutely. Um, You, I, I, um, I recently shared a story, um, of uh, years ago, a friend of mine and I were having a conversation. Our children were young. They're the same age. And, she was going back to work after her maternity leave, her second child. And she said to me, for the next couple of years, my children are going to be my priority. And so I'm going to leave my work and choose a role that allows me to work closer to where I live, pick up my children, drop them off, because that's what matters to me over that period of time. And then she looked at me and she said, how about you? And I said, I'm going to carry on, well, I didn't say it in those words, but, you know, I'm going to carry on commuting for an hour and a half each way, working in the same role, managing this large team. I'm also going to prioritize my children. So I'm going to prioritize both my career and my children. And she turned around and she said to me, but Isabel, you can only have one number one priority. And, you know, at the time, you know, you brush it over, you think, 
I'll manage. Well, several years later, she wasn't the one on the bench, right? In fact, she's now the CEO of a successful charity. She's had an amazing career. But at that time, she was very deliberate about choosing to prioritize her children. It didn't impair her in any way. In fact, the fact that she was very clear helped her to make all these decisions rather than where a lot of us women find ourselves, which is pushed and pulled because we want to prioritize everything. Mm -hmm. You know, I think when you have that clarity, it's almost like the doors open and decisions become so much easier if we stay true to what really matters to us. And I think it's a time now to, after all that we've gone through this past year, to ask ourselves really, what really matters? What really matters? How do I want to live my life? Because, you know, we only have this one life. And um, I think it's such an important question to ask ourselves. Yeah, yeah, it's really true. Um, there's so many things I still want to ask you. There was something else you said um, a few minutes back uh, about the, the body and we disconnect from the body. And mm. this was one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately as well. It's like, how did we lose touch? Because we're we're in our bodies. I mean, it, I, it seems crazy yeah. to me, but one of the things I've realized, cause I've been paying so much attention to it is in order to live the way society is set up, mm -hmm. you must ignore your body. Yeah. You must ignore when it's tired and just keep going. You must ignore when it wants something, food or drink or whatever, because often you're surrounded by a whole load of rubbish um, or you choose to eat that stuff and your body can, you feel it going, mm, I don't like it, but you eat it anyway, because that's what's available to you. It's fast. There's like the pace of life, the choices, the things we've been taught to value, all of these things force us into situations where we must deliberately ignore the signals that we're being sent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it's kind of no wonder that it becomes quite difficult for us to tune back in because as soon as we tune back in, actually the whole I don't know if you found this, but so many of the ways I was living then had to change because, yeah. and then, you, then you're bucking the system because now you're not socializing in the same way as your friends do. You're not working the same way as your colleagues are or you'd prefer not to. You don't want to binge watch Netflix with your partner until midnight because you recognize that your body actually needs more sleep and you'd rather go to bed. And there's thing after thing after thing that requires you to constantly buck the system, mm -hmm. which takes enormous strength. And it's kind of no wonder that so many people, and we feel it, then we go, oh, I can't. Yeah. And yeah. we keep going because everything's happening around us at such a pace. So as my last question, <laughs> what I would love to know from you is what would you say to people who've heard this and gone, oh, my God, that's me. And I get, I will take the pause and I will do that, but I just feel like I can't turn my whole life around. I can't buck the system. I can't push against the tide of my career and everything else because I feel like I don't have that choice to stop. Like the treadmill's moving too fast and I, I can't stop it. So I'll use the pause technique, but I'm still in this huge mess. What would you say to that woman? Or that man, I guess, if, if there's a man listening. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. I think it's equally valid for men. Um, you know, I, I you talked about um, choice and intention. And I, I, 
I guess two things. One is I, I often talk, and again in embodiment, we talk about awareness, choice, and intention. So now you know, right? Now you know. You've seen something that you can't unsee, so to speak. You've it's almost like there's a window that cracked open to let some light in, and you know that there may be something else. And so you've got that awareness and you've got to make a choice and nobody else can make that choice for you. And I, I would say, ask yourself really important questions like what matters to me? How do I want to live my life? How am I living my life in a way that fits in with society but doesn't fit in with me? And what small changes can I start making today? So I'm not suggesting... Um, that everybody quits their job and becomes a coach or a yoga teacher or, you know, changes career completely. I think that would be unreasonable. I think much more interesting to me and what I would suggest um, to people is how can I create that space and that well-being in my own life? So how can I have the impact that I want to have without sacrificing what really matters to me? And to know that you've got to ask yourself what really matters to me? Um, and then the small changes. And from there you go to intention. So what's my intention? If I know that this I can't do, what small intention can I take? So it may be, as you said, starting with slightly stronger boundaries around work. And if you're working all weekend, maybe it's saying, I'm not going to work this weekend. It may be choosing to drink a little bit more water. It may be choosing to start a meditation practice if that's something you feel called to do. It may be creating, you know, three alerts on your phone to take a pause for a minute each day. Um, it may be choosing to add into your life something that fuels you and lights you up and gives you joy so that you feel like you're not on that hamster's wheel. Um, I like personally to bookend my days with, um, well, I, I, I meditate and that, uh, you know, that gives me a lot. So that's like you, a practice that I I wouldn't give up on. And I do practices in the morning and the evening that really bookend my day so that it starts with intention and I can end with some reflection and feel like I can go to bed without a head full of thoughts. And that will look different for all of us. But what small things can you start doing that will help you to live your life in a way that matters to you? without quitting your job, without changing everything, you know, and the answer will be different for different people, but it's starting small. It's little and often. And, and a reminder too that the way we do anything is the way we do everything. And I think there's a lot of value in just slowing down in our pace across the board. So when I do, because I mean, I have millions of stories I could share about how I used to live my life, like cooking with my coat still on from coming through the door because I felt like I didn't have time to take it off. Well, you know, can I slow down? Can I take my coat off? Can I cook in a way that I want to live my life? And that doesn't mean you take two hours to, you know, to cook a few carrots, but really just think about what matters, what small changes can I make that will start to create that change and then, you know, the way I do anything is the way I do everything. So how am I choosing to do this in this moment? Mm. Um, so I hope it's helpful. It's very helpful. Um, and, you know, it's funny because that 
what you just said about the coat. I've done that too. And I remember my mom coming home and being the same and being like, oh, I've done everything. I didn't even get a chance to take my coat off before I cooked dinner. And ah. and yeah. it just, it made me realize two things. First, the, the power of the illusions we create. So when you think about that, the time it would take to take off a coat, but we have created in our minds a world where that time is, is not acceptable to take. Yeah. And the other thing is when I think about my memories of my mom doing that and also my motivation sometimes when I was doing it was like, I need people to see how hard this is. I need someone to catch me. Mm-hmm. I think it, on some level, that's what I was doing. Yeah. It was just like, I need to be able to say to somebody, look how hard this is. Yeah. I haven't even got time to take my coat off. That's how busy I am Yeah. because I didn't know how to do it. And I guess, again, it's a lovely way to bookend and end this podcast is to say putting all of those practices that you've just shared with us and taking that pause would allow you to see that it, it isn't up to anyone else. No. So it, it's always going to come down to us to make those choices for ourselves and then to, to tell the world what we need so that we can show up and be our best. And then I think it allows us to make space for other people to do the same rather Mm. than it being a selfish act. I think that's the other thing is we think we're being selfish, but I know for me, I've created a dynamic in this house that allows my children to be much freer, much safer, much more confident than the woman who would show up and yell at them in the maths homework Mm. or the woman who would moan at the dinner table because she didn't have time to take a coat off. Like she Mm. wasn't helpful to them. Mm-hmm. this woman is better in terms of what she can bring. And I'm far more selfish now than I ever was then, but it pays off in so many ways for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And just to pick on one last thing, I think this is a huge motivator for me too. Um, I once stood <clears throat> a few years ago in a mindfulness training and we all <clears throat> excuse me, put down on the floor um, little papers filled with words that um, express what happens when we're stressed. And, you know, we filled a whole circle on the floor and then we walked around that circle to observe and read those words. And I stood there and I thought, my daughter is not going to stand around a circle like that, looking at these words, feeling like, oh my God, what, you know, what, you know, how am I living? What am I creating with my life? And so for me, role modeling that to our children, I think is one of the most powerful things we can do for them and for their generation. So I, again, I could speak for hours, but I think, thank you for bringing that up because that's really like, I, I will not have my daughter um, you know, I can't sit by and watch a society that that drives women to go along that path, knowing that my daughter could be taking that path one day, Absolutely. not under my watch. No, no, exactly. I, I feel exactly the same way. And for my son as well. Oh, my goodness. I hope you got as much out of that podcast as I did. What I loved was that call to stop, to pause to take a breath, to allow space. And I think for so many of us, it's the thing we don't do. 
And if you listened to my podcast last week, you know that that is a trap that I fell into quite recently and one that caused me to try and do everything for everybody, try and move faster, do more, be more, and then end up feeling resentful and then judging myself for feeling resentful and then having my negative thoughts spiral to such an extent that I ended up feeling depressed in a way that I haven't for years. It was also really interesting, actually, just listening to myself on that podcast as I spoke with Isabel, because there were so many examples of things that I talked about and said, you know, I do this, I do that. But I didn't do those things recently. And again, it just goes to show how we can know the right things to do, but in the absence of practicing them, they don't have the power that we need them to have. It was also a nice reminder to me that none of us is perfect and none of us gets it right all of the time. So we have to be, I don't know, accepting of our humanness and the fact that sometimes things will go wrong, sometimes we will feel bad, and sometimes the spiral will be negative, and that all we can do is pause, take a breath, and figure out what's going on so that we can change the direction of the cycle. Isabel certainly gave me food for thought and also, I hope, gave you some really practical ideas that you can implement straight away. If you'd like to know more about her work, you can find the links to her website, LinkedIn page, and her podcast all available on the show notes page, which you'll find at bighappylife.co.uk. As always, that's where you can leave comments and questions, and you can also visit the Big Happy Life Facebook page, which you'll find at Big Happy Life page. And if you're not into public comments and public questions, you can email me natalie at bighappylife.co.uk. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do give a review of the podcast on whatever podcast app you're using, and it would be wonderful if you could share it with people who you think would also enjoy and benefit from listening. For now, though, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.